Hello everyone, this is Flo. And this is Jesse. Welcome to another edition of the Great War Channel Supporter Podcast. I can't believe it's already October. The year is passing by. 1919 was almost as exciting as 2019, or maybe the other way around, I'm not so sure. <laughs> and uh, yeah, everything. it has been quite an eventful September uh, with the announcement of our Berlin project. Uh, thank you for your ongoing support. The campaign is still going and we are blown away by the support. Um, but of course, that's not the only thing we are occupied with. Because there's not just two episodes of The Great War coming, but there's two and a half or three or one bigger and two smaller episodes. <laughs> You're not a marketer by nature, <laughs> that's clear. There are three new episodes of The Great War coming. That's how you do it. Yeah, okay. Three new episodes, asterisk, two of them a bit shorter <laughs> for reasons such as a lack of photos and, well, I mean, it's not just a lack of photos in terms of like accessing them in an archive, but a lack of photos because we are going to talk about Afghanistan and, and the Caucasus regions and by 1919 mass media standards, uh, these places were probably not always worth sending a lot of reporters, let alone uh, film men, there. And even if they went there, then we are still lucky when the the negative the film roles uh, for the younger people out there, film used to be something on a, on a physical medium that was quite sensitive to temperatures, and uh, for example, also fires, that kind of thing. So. Long story short, it's very hard to cover certain aspects of 1919. That's why we opted to do two smaller episodes, one on the Caucasus and one on Afghanistan. We didn't want to not do those yeah. topics because they're pretty interesting and... Super relevant. They're, they're quite relevant uh, and they don't get a lot of press. And probably part of the reason they don't get a lot of press is the problems that Flo just summarized. But enough about that. We had a bash at it and uh, we put together a couple of episodes on them so we figured better uh, klein aber fein as they say in German small but still good I guess in English good things come in small packages that's the one Afghanistan I think is always fascinating to talk about because I think as of this recording the national elections in Afghanistan in the year 2019 or happened I think last weekend or last week and I think it's a very interesting parallel to go back a hundred years to the year when Afghanistan got its independence after uh, the so-called third Anglo-Afghan war and I have to say it already tells you a lot about the history of a region when they have a third in front of their wars, when, when they need to with start one, with one of the wars. one of the adversaries that they fought, right? Well, it's uh, Afghanistan was at a crossroads uh, for obviously the region for all of its history, but most particularly in the second half of the nineteenth century, it was it became relevant in international politics because of the so-called Great Game between the Russian Empire and the British Empire. It was the sort of buffer zone where they were both trying to either defend their imperial zone or sort of put a little pressure on 
the imperial zone of their rival. And so this meant that uh, by the end of the second Anglo-Afghan War, in um, the end of the 1870s, early 1880s, Britain gained control over Afghan foreign policy. So there was like an emir of Afghanistan who sort of had local control as far as control could be exercised by a central uh, ruler in the region, but that the external relations were pretty much controlled by the British. And this was shaken up probably for the first time uh, since 1880 in World War I. Uh, we covered a few years ago, I believe, the German mission to Afghanistan, did, which yeah. was which also had Ottomans, not only Germans, but also Ottomans, uh, which was of some concern to the British. And um, once the war ended, all this pressure in Afghanistan, political pressure, had built up and, and forced action. And there were assassinations and a new emir came and that emir decided, I've got to do something so that I don't end up like my uncle, the previous emir, and declared war on British India. Which is a pretty bold move, I would say, because British India, um, bigger than current day India, because I think it included Pakistan, today's Pakistan and Bangladesh even then. And, and uh, Myanmar as well. And Myanmar. And they had supplied quite a bit of military personnel to German East Africa, to the Western Front. The Middle East, to Mesopotamia the, to the Middle East, yeah. and Palestine. Kut, Kut Alamara was big. Um, so, you know, you could say that they ha had a bit of manpower to uh, fight back. Uh, well. So, sorry, our upstairs neighbors decided to play <laughs> a round of bowling right just now. <laughs> they decided to play construction. I mean, yes and no. Um, British India certainly had far more resources at its disposal than the Afghan emir had, there's no question. Projecting them into the border region of the northwest frontier is not easy, uh, especially at the time. Now, they had a couple new tricks up their sleeve, like air power, which is something we talked about in the episode, and trucks, which hadn't been really heavily used uh, in military logistics in that region before that kind of changed the, the game plan a bit of what the British could do. On the other hand, they have some problems. The British Indian Army is not enthusiastic about staying in uniform, uh, and neither are the British imperial troops from Britain itself, since they've been in uniform, some of them, for four or five years at this point. Um, in addition, the British are struggling with unrest in India. We mentioned in one of our roundup segments back in April about the Amritsar massacre where uh, British Indian troops under British Imperial Command massacred hundreds of innocent civilians uh, with machine guns. And this was uh, a catalyst that increased the amount of resistance against British rule. So the British base in India is not quite as uh, as stable as it had been in the past, even though obviously Afghanistan is not a real threat to conquer British India. I don't think that was the objective. The objective was to put enough pressure that the British would allow 
Afghanistan to determine its own foreign policy. Right. And uh, I mean, what did the Afghans have to offer, like in terms of like engaging in this kind of conflict? The Emir declared war. But I mean, did Afghanistan even have an army? They did have an army of, uh, depending on the source, from 40 to 50,000 men. They had a few, they had some uh, modern German-built uh, Krupp artillery pieces as well. Oh, that, that they got as a favor already to uh, sway to the German side, perhaps? Uh, it may have been. They might have purchased them. I don't, I can't say 100% how they got their hands on them, but they had some. And they also had a fair number of modern rifles. And they also had an important potential ally in the local people, often referred to at the time as tribes, living on the British Indian side of the border in today's Pakistan, in places that we all might have heard in the news, like around Peshawar, in Waziristan, um, in Baluchistan province, next to Kandahar province across the border in Afghanistan. This so, all sounds very familiar. Exactly. I, I completely felt like I was reading about, you know, the 2000s and 2010s at some times when I was uh, reading these place names. And so all these tribes are not particularly happy being under British rule. And so the Afghan plan is, we know we can't beat the British straight up, but we can cause a lot of damage uh, in a remote region by encouraging those tribes to rise up with us. And that doesn't work in every instance, but there is a major tribal rebellion that breaks out that takes the British a long time to quell, long after the Anglo-Afghan war is over in August. Yeah, um, to wrap this up, I was already thinking about the familiarity when you talked about things like The British had a few things up their sleeve, uh, like uh, trucks and logistics and air power. This also felt very, very much like uh, the new news reports I remember from 2001. Anyway, very fascinating episode, very fascinating topic. And from one landlocked region of Asia, we will go to another one, uh, which also saw a lot of action and activity in 1919 and is also not always that well covered, the Caucasus. This is true and specifically the South Caucasus because the, the Caucasus uh, double mountain range, let's say, uh, is a great divider uh, for human activity including politics and war. So the North Caucasus was a bit of a different ball game. The, the whites were active there, as well as the Bolsheviks, depending on the time period of who's in charge of what. But uh, the South Caucasus region, where now we have the current day states of Azerbaijan, Georgia and Armenia, was a little bit isolated from what's going on in the quote unquote main Russian civil war uh, to the north of it. And um, when the Ottoman Empire collapsed, the two main great powers that had traditionally exerted influence in the region, well, Iran as well, but by this time Iran was not a, a major power and was partially under British influence. Persia. Persia, right. They are, uh, so the Turks and the, and the traditional Russian state, they're kind of out of the question, start out of the equation. 
uh, starting in the fall of 1918, and uh, in the case of the Russians, even earlier. So all hell sort of breaks loose. And you have a, a brief attempt at a, a conjoined state, but then they can't agree amongst themselves on the borders and on their policy towards the Turks because the Azeris are relatively friendly with the Turks. They share uh, a similar language. They're also Muslims. The Armenians are clearly arch enemies of the Turks and fear the Turks as well. Um, and the Georgians are also not necessarily fans of the Turks, even though they are in low-level fighting with the whites over the region along the Black Sea coast. So they can't decide, basically, on a common policy, and this one state shatters. Uh, already in May 1918, the Georgians figure, well, actually the Germans are the best guys to guarantee our safety, so they pull out and uh, sign a treaty with the Germans. And so then the other two declare independence as well, almost because what else are you going to do? And there's a whole series of massacres between the Armenians and the Azeris. And the Turks then march in, um, yeah, just trying to sum this up is, is difficult. But to make a very long story short, the British are also there, and in the end, uh, what happens is these three small states that are desperately looking for a stabilizing factor from outside, not always the same one. Um, the Armenians probably would have been happier if the American, the idea of an American mandate for Armenia had gone through because the Americans were most uh, sympathetic to the idea of a greater Armenian state, which they tried to get through in the Treaty of Sevres, actually, uh, in 1920. But to make a long story short, the great powers end up returning. And the Turkish Republic and Bolshevik Russia kind of make a deal. And the Turks say, hey, we need, we need your help uh, fighting against the Greeks and the allies in Western Turkey. So we're fine if you march into Azerbaijan, even though they're kind of our buddies. And so uh, they launch, the Turks attack Armenia, the Reds come occupy Azerbaijan, then they also attack Armenia, and Armenia has no choice basically but to surrender to the Bolsheviks if they don't want to be under Turkish rule. And you might be wondering, why are the great powers and the new powers like Bolshevik Russia uh, even interested in this region, which is you know hard to reach because it's mountainous and everything? And the answer is... Oil. I was going to say, there are two answers, and the more important one in 1919 is oil. It is true it was traditionally a crossroads for trade. It was seen by the British as like the farthest buffer zone for India and Afghanistan and Persia. But Baku oil is by far the single largest uh, source of world oil at the time. The British actually send a, a force, a Dunster force, named after the commander, in 1918 to occupy uh, the city for a while. It's key. It's, key. It's, it's a key motivation, and Stalin even tells Pravda uh, uh, in 1920 about why this region is so important, and he doesn't really mention you know, the worldwide revolution of the working peoples of the Caucasus. He talks about strategic crossroads and resources. So, oh. 
Oh, interesting, well, again, considering that he's Georgian, but... Uh, yeah. And quite a few prominent Bolsheviks, this is another interesting factor, quite a few prominent Bolsheviks were from the region, especially from Georgia and, uh, and Armenia, and that also is something that really turned the Bolshevik look to the Caucasus. If you, didn't, if you weren't convinced by the hard reasons, uh, there were some personal connections there as well. All right, so... Afghanistan, the southern Caucasus, and there is another region that we haven't really covered on the channel so far, and that is Anatolia and Greece. Um, the reason why we haven't covered that in an extra episode so far, uh, even though the so-called Greco-Turkish war was already starting in 1919, is the same as with the previous episodes. Um, the archive situation is an absolute nightmare. Um, I mean, we know that there is some material available, but uh, to call, uh, I would say the the bureaucracy from the Greek archives I've been in touch so far is Byzantine. Yes, it is. It's um, it starts with the fact that most of them require you to be physically present uh, present there to make any claims for images you want to use. Um, and in Turkey, the situation seems to be you need to know a guy who needs to know a guy. And uh, both of these things are very hard uh, slash impossible to manage from Berlin. Um, I have a few contacts that are trying to help me with it, but um, yeah, it's complicated. But that being said, it's a very important conflict uh, in 1919. And moving forward, it's going to continue going to be important. Which is why we at least wanted to have an expert interview on it. And earlier today, Jesse interviewed Dr. Konstantinos Travlos to talk a bit about the situation in Greek Greece versus Turkey 1919. And we're going to listen to that interview right now. So today we're joined by Dr. Konstantinos Travlos, who's a political scientist studying international conflict and the history of international conflicts at Ozean University in Istanbul. And he's also covering on a monthly basis the Greco-Turkish war on social media like YouTube and Twitter. So thank you very much, Dr. Travlos, for joining us today. Thank you very much for the invitation. It's really great to be uh, together with you guys. Your series has been an inspiration for me. And uh, I'm looking forward to having an interesting talk today about a very complex uh, topic. Indeed. Um, thank, you for the, thank you for the compliment, by the way. Yeah, um, the Greco-Turkish War slash the Turkish War of Independence is a hot topic in the comments under our videos on other topics because we haven't yet made a full-length episode about it, even though it's one of the critical conflicts to the period we're dealing with. This has to do uh, not with a lack of uh, interest on our part, but with a bit of a complicated um, archival situation. So we hope we can uh, start filling the gap with you here today. So this conflict is not particularly well known in North America or Western Europe, um, especially the first period, I think. The, the little bit that I had heard about it before getting more interested in this period was mostly about the decisive swings that took place in the early 1920s. But actually things really get hopping in 1919. So Maybe you can kind of uh, describe to us a little bit this earlier phase where things are not uh, kind of a clear-cut, you know, army versus army type of a conflict. So one thing that we can 
say about this conflict. It is it's it's a archetypical Clausewitzian conflict in the sense that politics and military events are very much tied. And this is the case with most of the post war post World War One conflicts that are going on uh, as the aftermath of the war that you're covering. But it's especially the case uh, here because of the politics during World War One. So let's uh, put it simply. Just as in the case with the dissolution of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, just as in the case with the dissolution of the Russian Empire, the end of the war brings into question the existence of the Ottoman Empire. The Wilsonian principles and the various centers of the great powers seem to indicate that there's going to be an attempt to finally resolve the Eastern question, which is really the question of what happens with the Ottoman Empire once the great powers decide they don't want to keep it the way it was. And obviously, there are many stakes here. You have uh, the British stake, the French stake, the Italian stake, and you also have the stake of the populations within the empire and the countries around them. So there is a Greek stake that is connected to the uh, fate of the Ottoman Greeks. There is, of course, an Armenian stake that is connected to the genocide events that happened in 1914-1918 and to also the creation of the Republic of Armenia in what was called Russian Armenia. And with the end of the war, everybody sees a window of opportunity to try and get what they want. Now, uh, the conditions on the ground make things a bit complicated because, as you very well know, during the war, there was massive deportation uh, of the Armenians that essentially rose up to the levels of a genocide. But there was also massive deportation of Ottoman Greeks. Not as big as that of the Armenians, but somewhere between 300,000 and 500,000 Ottoman Greeks were deported. A number of them died, uh, 50,000 to 150,000, depending on the sources. And another 130,000 to 200,000 became refugees in Greece. And in Greece, this is called a genocide as well, but it's not as well known or as well recognized as the Armenian case. With the end of the war, all of these people are going to return to their homes. But their homes have been given to Ottoman Muslim refugees that had been kicked out of the Balkans in what was ethnic cleansing uh, during the Balkan Wars. And of course, also Muslim refugees that left the Caucasus in the creation of Armenia. So you have the situation, we have all these desperate people who are really fighting for their physical uh, uh, survival. And they don't know what belongs to who. You have a country that has been ravaged by war, a military government that has collapsed, a collapse of law and order, and thus very much really conditions that seem to indicate that there's going to be a new ethnic conflict. And these conditions create an extra impetus for the great powers to try to essentially create a preliminary res resolution of the situation that we create physical security. And Greek Prime Minister Eleftherios Venizelos is pushing for Greece to be given uh, essentially what we would call today a peacekeeping mission to deploy troops to certain parts of Anatolia to protect the Ottoman Greek populations there. But of course, uh, this is also part of his attempt to bring about a territorial, uh, a territorial uh, expression, a territorial realization of the Greek Megali idea. And up to 1914, Ottoman Greeks 
did not necessarily have the same idea as the Greeks of Greece about how to bring about the Megali idea, the expansion of the Greek world and its unification to one political system. There was, a, for example, a certain trend in Istanbul, Constantinople, which was we should create a liberal Ottoman Empire, which the Greeks will dominate and then unite. But with what happened in World War One, the Ottoman Greeks became radicalized. And now they agreed as well as the Greeks of Greece for a territorial expansion of Greece. And uh, as far as I understand, Lloyd George played a critical role in the decision to allow Greek troops to move into Asia Minor. Yes. See, Lloyd George knew Venizelo since 1913. Uh, they had a friendly relationship. Lloyd George also had a very good relationship with the Greek uh, expatriate community in London, which was very powerful economically, and they were very much supportive of the Liberal Party, and specifically on Lloyd George in his coalition government. And uh, Lloyd George was a bit of a Turkophobe. You could even say he was chauvinistically, chauvinistically against the Turks. And he believed that the solution for the Eastern question was building a Greece that would control the Aegean Sea and the Marmara Sea and the Bosporus. So his belief was that the best way for England, for the United Kingdom, to ensure its position in the Eastern Mediterranean was by raising Greece into its local proxy, which worked perfectly, of course, for Venezuelans, who also believed that that was the best solution for Greece and its security long term. So he was pushing for this, but obviously he was opposed by other members of the cabinet who had different ideas, ranging from Lord Curzon's idea of, well, I don't really care if the Greeks come to Anatolia, but I want Istanbul taken from the Turks. And then you had Henry Wilson and the war ministry, Churchill and the colonial minister who all believed that it was in the interest of the English to keep Turkey. But what happened is in Versailles, Lloyd George had an unprecedented opportunity to conduct personal diplomacy. And he had President Wilson and Clement Shaw there, and they could all make decisions that they wouldn't have to immediately uh, defend with their cabinets. And that was what happened in May 15, 1919, when they essentially asked Venizelos, do you have an army available? Can you send it to Izmir in order to stop the Italians? Right. I was just going to bring the Italians into this. Now, um What's the dynamic that's going on? Why are the Italians such a, such a concern to the British in this case? I mean, they hadn't proved themselves an overwhelming military power during the First World War. They had it, but the Italians had sacrificed a lot during the war, and they believed that that gave them some rights into territorial aggressiveness. Now, the thing with the Italians is this. In 1911, the Italians had that attacked the Ottoman Empire and had conquered Libya, but they had also conquered the Dodecanese Islands. Now, these islands were overwhelmingly populated by Greeks. There was also a small Muslim minority, but importantly, these islands permitted Italy to project power into the coast of Anatolia, of Asia Minor. Now, in Anatolia, there was a minority population called uh, the Latin population, which was made up of uh, Roman Catholics, uh, their descent was all over. There were Greeks, Syriacs, uh, Turks, there were, were ex-Jews, but there were also a lot of Italians. And the Italians used that population as an excuse to make colonial demands in the area. They, they, they wished to take over Western Anatolia 
Izmir, Atalia, and so on, and create a new uh, Roman Mediterranean Empire by controlling Western Anatolia, a big landmass there, and controlling the Dodecanese Islands, they could essentially lock the Aegean uh, into an Italian area of influence. So uh, they were pushing for this. And when the Allies were not uh, f uh, forthcoming with what they had promised to them during World War One, they took unilateral action by uh, doing what's called really, uh, you know, kind of like touch and go operations. They will send some minor troops from Rhodos and the Dodecanese into Anatolia to present the Italian flag, and then they will pull them out. So they were doing this throughout 1918, but then around 1919, they actually decided to send more substantial forces into the landmass, especially in areas like Atalia, the Bodrum, Mulga, and even more into the interior to Konya Iconium. So it seemed like the Italians had decided to unilaterally take parts of the Ottoman Empire under their influence and control. So in terms of the Greeks, I mean, Greek, uh, Greece is not uh, by any stretch of the imagination uh, a great power. And maybe this is a bit of a, a hindsight type question, but what made the Greeks think that this was an achievable objective? Because the Muslim population of Anatolia was far greater than the Greek population. And even though, of course, the Ottomans were, had been crushed uh, in 1918, were Greek expectations realistic that they would be able to achieve this expansion? This is the greatest debate in Greek historiography. It has not been resolved. And depending on which side you take, your politics are uh, forever determined. Uh, let's put it this way. Why did Venizelos believe that he could get away with it? Okay, rather than whether they are realistic or not. Now, Venizelos was working on a number of foundations in his thinking. First of all, there was the reality that it was very clearly uh, signaled by the great four that there will be a resolution of the Eastern question that will see a diminution of the Ottoman Empire, okay? So, you know, there were clear signals that uh, the Ottoman Empire will not be permitted to continue ruling the territory it had in 1914, that there will be measures taken to alleviate what uh, they thought was the situation of the Christian minorities within Anatolia. So he believed, first of all, that on a moral and political ground, there was support for Greece making a stake. Secondly, uh, Lloyd George was continuously saying, go for it and we'll support you. Go for it and we'll support you. It is true that no one else in the English cabinet was saying the same thing. But Venizelos might have mistaken Lord George, might have thought that Lord George had the kind of power as Prime Minister of the United Kingdom that Venizelos had as Prime Minister of uh, Greece. Okay, so that is a very big fallacy. But for whatever reason, Lord George was telling, go for it, we will support you. Third, the Ottoman Empire had been disbanded, forced to be mobilized. By 1919, it had become just 45,000 men, while Greece had an army that could be mobilized, that could reach potentially 300,000 men. So if the Ottomans were not permitted to mobilize, he had no reason to think that militarily taking small parts of Anatolia was beyond that. 
Fourth, he believed that it wasn't just Greece that was going to intervene. He was fully expecting that the British will deploy troops, that the French will deploy troops, that the Italians will deploy troops, that essentially Anatolia will be divided into zones of occupation. So Greece will not have to deal with that overwhelming Muslim population because that overwhelming Muslim population will be subjugated to foreign occupation by great powers. Finally, there is an element of chauvinism in Venezuela, and he believes that Muslims as people are not capable of expressing the kind of virulent nationalism that Bulgarians or Greeks had. And that as long as Greek government was fair and liberal, as long as Greece uh, imposed a kind of rule that was better than the Ottoman rule, most Muslims in the areas that Greece would occupy would in the end accept Greek rule and become integrated. And he based this on his experience from Crete and from his experience from the Muslim population in Macedonia, which after some initial problems had largely become accustomed and acceptable of Greek rule. Well, then that leads to my next question about how this Greek presence in Asia Minor, uh, in Smyrna, Izmir, and the hinterland, how did that then slide into the cycle of violence that began almost immediately in 1919? What kind of Greek rule was actually in place there? Okay, so the violence has already, in a way, the violence had never stopped. For example, in the Cradenis Pontus region, there was always conflict between Pontic Greek militias and Muslim groups. Uh, there was violence as refugees and deportees returned. So, for example, in Aivali Hidonie, uh, which used to be an overwhelmingly Greek town, and the whole Greek population had been expelled in 1913-1914, when they came back and they found the Muslim refugees in their houses, well, they were violent. So, violence had been endemic, but, of course, it changed from area to area. The Greek arrival, the military Greek arrival, had the result of A, leading a lot of the Ottoman Greeks to take violent action they will never have been willing to do before, and engaging in more violence against the Muslim population, for example, in Aydin. Uh, and secondly, uh, leading a lot of the Muslim population to become more willing to take the side of the nationalists and take up arms. So the presence of the Greek army became a fostering factor for the escalation of the conflict. That said, within the Greek region of control, the high commissioner that was appointed by Eleftheros Venizelos, Aristides Teriadis, who used to be the governor of Epirus, was a man who tried to impose a neutral rule, okay? And he did it to such a point that the Ottoman Greeks were continuously conspiring to have him called off because he essentially stopped them from organizing uh, insurrection, from putting pressure on the Muslims and stuff like that. So wherever Steriadis could get his control, the Greek rule was generally speaking, at least Stergiadis was generally speaking, under control. And even the Turkish sources speak about that, uh, and even the English sources speak about that, because Stergiadis generally was considered as a competent uh, civil servant. The problem was what happens in the regions which were not under the complete control of the Greeks, in the borderlands where there was a conflict, and what happened there was a lot of the local Greek commanders, especially the junior officers, they have been caught fostering violence against Muslims. 
Uh, and uh, especially in 1919, there were a couple of cases uh, in which Greek military troops were surprised by the Turkish guerrillas, the Kuvai Emilia. And in reaction to the surprise, sometimes they were forced to retreat. They will then commit atrocities. An example of this is at Menemen and at Aydin. Now, those atrocities were not planned by the Greek state. They were not ordered by the Greek state. They were not uh, ordered by any of the major unit commanders, but they did happen. And uh, they were happening despite the best efforts of the Greek high command and especially of Venizelos and Aristides to put under control. You know, if you read the letters by Venizelos to his vice premier, he's always saying the Ottoman Greeks are acting stupidly. They're putting into danger everything I have worked for. You know, Steriadis has to impose himself on them and the military has to obey and it has to become more serious about, about imposing discipline. So there's always this tension there. And in the end, uh, if I understand correctly, they were not able to impose the degree of control that would have stabilized the situation in 1919. Well, what happened is, yes, uh, they were able to impose a degree of control within the military line, within that zone. But essentially, what happened is the other part of Venezuela's great plan never materialized. In another name, the Allies never occupied Anatolia, which meant that the nationalist movement was free to build itself. With the nationalist movement being free to build itself, it was free to continue supporting opposition to Greek rule. This led to guerrilla uh, warfare, which then led to Greek atrocities, which built up and continued building up this uh, level of escalation. And by 1920, Venizelos comes to the conclusion uh, that the Allies are not going to save the situation and that the only option Greece has in order to essentially guarantee its stakes in the peace uh, conference is to take its own military action, which leads to the escalation of the military effort. And then the, the first Greek offensive, which is in the summer of 1920, which leads the Greek army from the Milne zone all the way to Prusa and Ushak. In the middle of Anatolia. In the middle of Anatolia, right. essentially right. right before you get into the Greek plateau that has Ankara mm -hmm. and the key mm -hmm. cities of Afyonkar, Ahisar and Eskise here, which are essentially the key logistical uh, nodes in Anatolia back then. That's probably a logical point for us to uh, tie up the loose ends uh, for today, since we've kind of come up to the end of 1919, beginning of 1920, and a, and a sort of turning point uh, in the conflict there. So I want to thank you very much for allowing us to sort of fill some of the gap in our, in our video series uh, up until now. We're doing our best to, to bring some material to YouTube, but um, we'll see how that works out. Um, before we go, uh, I understand that you've got uh, a book that you're involved with coming out. Why don't you tell our listeners uh, a bit about the book and maybe when it's expected to come out and where they can get their hands on it? Yeah, uh, I have a book under review with Lexington Books. It's an edited volume called Salvation and Catastrophe, the Greek-Turkish War 1919-1922. And the book uh, compiles a number of contributions by political scientists, historians and sociologists from Turkey, Greece and international. And the topics covered vary. Uh, some of them are relevant to the early period. Some of them are relevant to the later period. Some of them are relevant to the whole war. Uh, we 
we have chapters that are about the decision of Venizelos to embark on this whole uh, enterprise. We have chapters on the leadership qualities of Mustafa Kemal Ataturk and Elefteris Venizelos. We have uh, chapters about the causes of the Greek defeat. We have chapters about the Greek military strategy throughout the period. Uh, we have uh, chapters over doing a survey of the decisive battles during the campaign. We have a very interesting chapter on assault troops and in the in the Turkish army. Uh, and we have chapters about the situation of the Muslims that lived in Greece during the period, which is something that is not very well known, you know, internationally. Uh, we do have chapters about the population movements, the genocide, and so on. And we even have a chapter about two interesting populations that you might learn later on in the series, the Karamanlis, who were uh, Turkish-speaking Christians who wrote Turkish in the Greek alphabet, and also about the Armenians that went to Greece after the war. So it has interesting, it's an interesting smorgasbord of uh, topics. And uh, we hope to have it out in 1920, uh, sorry, in 2020, uh, with lexicon books. So right now it's not available, it's under review, but once it is published, it will be available through Amazon and also by lexicon books itself. Great, uh, thank you for that. I fully sympathize with the, the Freudian slip of 1920-2020. It's something that we do in the office here all the time. Uh, but thank you very much for joining us and uh, we hope to talk to you again. Yeah, thank you very much for having me on the show, guys. You're doing a great job and remember the goats. <laughs> <laughs> so thanks again, Konstantinos Travlos, for uh, helping us make sense of another very complex uh, subject in 1919. Uh, as I said, we hope we can cover it in more detail and also in video form, you know, with maps and the usual production quality of the Great War moving forward. The last thing I wanted to get uh, at today is Patreon questions. Uh, we've got quite a few over the summer and as I promised uh, we wanted to make some more time to cover them. And one question that we want to answer today is from Arlo Brimley who, uh, who says As I'm visiting Austria for the first time in my life this August, sorry that we are a bit late, uh, I'd love to see an episode about how the remnant of the Empire collected itself after the Great War. Love your new format, work, thank you. Uh, the Italian episode was one of my favorite episodes produced by the Great War Channel ever. Wow, that's pretty cool. Thanks a lot, Arlo. Um, we hope you had a great time in Austria. Um, and we hope that after you returned, you saw our Treaty of Saint-Germain episode, which covered a few of the, let's say, geopolitical um, macro-perspective issues uh, with the remnants of, how is it called, trans uh, Cislatania, yeah, that's a thing I've... Uh, the Austrian half of the empire, because the Leiter is a river, and that was mostly the border between the Austrian and side and the Kingdom of Hungary side. See, I learned something today. Anyway, to um, Arlo's question. Yes. Now, the long version, which I won't do, is uh, there have been tens of thousands of books written on this topic of how Central Europe reacted to, moved on from, was not able to move on from the collapse of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Um, basically, I, I think the short version is, how did it move on? How did the remnant of empire uh, move on? With great difficulty. 
um, all of the economic links that had been built up over the course of centuries and that flowed along, um, I hesitate to use this word in the context, but sort of natural economic trade routes that had been then strengthened by the existence of the Austro-Hungarian state and where they built the railways corresponded to how that state functioned, where its economic centers were, the three big population centers of Vienna, Prague and Budapest. Um, they now don't correspond at all to the new borders of the new states. And the character, ethnic character of the population also doesn't correspond to the new borders of the new states in any way, shape or form. So uh, people who had been considered sort of full-fledged citizens of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, regardless of whether they were a minority in their hometown or home province, uh, now find themselves a national minority in a much different political situation. That is not to say there was no ill treatment of minorities in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, I want to make that clear, but it wasn't uh, part of the identity of the state at the imperial level. Um, in the Kingdom of Hungary there, there, was, there was some uh, Hungarianization policies, but uh, the situation afterwards in all the little states is much more intense. Um, in addition, there's not enough food to go around. Very, and a very important aspect of nation building. And yeah, if, if people don't have food, they're, they're not that enthusiastic about building a new state or whether there was an old state, they want to eat food. And this is one of the main causes of the quick collapse of the uh, Austro-Hungarian Empire in the second half of 1918. And the food that is there can't get to the places that need it. So Vienna has a lot of people, but the new Austrian Republic can't feed it. The food had to come, would have to come from Hungary, where there's a lot of agricultural land. And Vienna is very close to the Hungarian part of the empire. Exactly, except that Hungary is now in a state of communist revolution and at war with its neighbors, Romania and uh, Czechoslovakia and Yugoslavia. So it's not like they're shipping all sorts of food to Vienna. Um, But they're shipping revolutionaries. <laughs> They, they are <laughs> attempting to ship revolutionaries to Vienna, which doesn't work out so well. Um, and the old empire was also held together by its bureaucracy, by the aristocracy, and by the army officer class, who all kind of had the same connection to the dynasty and that kind of political and cultural framework. And now this all needs to be redone. And... Um, Uh, that proves to be a difficult task as well. One of our viewers made an excellent comment on the Saint-Germain episode about the problems with establishing citizenship for the new citizens of the new republics and that it was a complete mess and based on older data that had people ending up citizens of countries where they didn't live anymore and, and that sort of thing. I, uh, I have a friend, uh, her her grandfather is from Istria and he never moved in his life and I think he had four different passports uh, in his lifetime so far without ever moving, you know, just to illustrate how absurd this kind of situation can get. Indeed, and of course uh, that, I haven't even gotten to the actual wars, 
yeah. that break out, right? The Poles are fighting the Czechs. The Poles are fighting the Ukrainians over East uh, Galicia. The Hungarians are fighting the Serbs and the Romanians. Um, and I'm probably forgetting. So uh, the Yugoslavs are in conflict, the low-level conflict with the Bulgarians. The Romanians are supporting the Poles against Ukraine. That is also true. The Romanians uh, also had troops uh, in, uh, in Ukraine uh, briefly or in East Galicia briefly. Um, so, and of course, there's the whole question of internal politics in the Yugoslav kingdom, which we haven't yet got to on the show, but it may come as little surprise to people who are interested in the regions that the Croats and the Serbs didn't always see the future of the Yugoslav state in the same way. I'm shocked. Shocked, I tell you. Plus ça change. Plus séparé, as we say in French. The more it changes, the more it stays the same. What a very good way to wrap this up with a highbrow French uh, saying. Um, I need to leave now because the radiator in my flat is leaking. <laughs> <laughs> the life of a YouTube yeah. creator is glorious, yeah. people. It's, yeah, glamorous media life. Uh, but, you know, in 2019... You don't ask uh, the plumber for a convenient time. He tells you when he has time and you accept. And uh, by this law of uh, working together with artisans uh, in the city, we're going to leave you for now. Stay tuned for the exciting episodes we talked about because apart from the two mini episodes we talked about, there's also... More in the Russian Civil War to come. And Part there three. is another peace treaty coming. Indeed, in November. So stay tuned for that. Thanks again for supporting us um, at 16 Days in Berlin and also here on Patreon for the Great War. And we will see you next time. See you.